Section 3, Disqualification from Office for Insurrection or Rebellion. Section 3. No person shall be a senator or representative in Congress, or elector of president and vice president, or hold any office, civil or military, under the United States, or under any state, who, having previously taken an oath, as a member of Congress, or as an officer of the United States, or as a member of any state legislature, or as an executive or judicial officer of any state, to support the Constitution of the United States, shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same, or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof. But Congress may, by a vote of two-thirds of each house, remove such disability. Soon after losing the Civil War in 1865, states that had been part of the Confederacy began to send unrepentant former Confederates, such as the Confederacy's former Vice President, Alexander H. Stevens, to Washington as senators and representatives. Congress refused to seat them and drafted Section 3 to perpetuate, as a constitutional imperative, that any who violate their oath to the Constitution are to be barred from public office. Section 3 disqualifies from federal or state office anyone who, having taken an oath as a public official to support the Constitution, subsequently engages in insurrection or rebellion against the United States or gives aid and comfort to its enemies. Southerners strongly opposed it, arguing it would hurt reunification of the country. Section 3 does not specify how it is to be invoked, but by precedent disqualification is imposed by simple majorities of the House and Senate, separately, and can be removed by a supermajority of each. After the amendment's adoption in 1868, disqualification was seldom enforced in the South. At the urging of President Ulysses S. Grant, in 1872 Congress passed the Amnesty Act, which removed the disqualification from all but the most senior Confederates. In 1898, as a gesture of national unity during the Spanish-American War, Congress passed another law broadening the amnesty. Congress posthumously lifted the disqualification from Confederate General Robert E. Lee in 1975, and Confederate President Jefferson Davis in 1978. These waivers do not bar Section 3 from being used today. Since Reconstruction, Section 3 has been invoked only once, it was used to block Socialist Party of America member Victor L. Berger of Wisconsin, convicted of violating the Espionage Act for opposing U.S. entry into World War I, from assuming his seat in the House of Representatives in 1919 and 1920. Berger's conviction was overturned by the Supreme Court in Berger v. United States, 1921, after which he was elected to three successive terms in the 1920s, he was seated for all three terms. 2021 United States Capitol Attack On January 10, 2021, Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House, formally requested representatives' input as to whether to pursue Section 3 disqualification of former U.S. President Donald Trump because of his role in the attack on the United States Capitol on January 6. Unlike impeachment, which requires a supermajority to convict, disqualification under Section 3 would only require a simple majority of each House of Congress. The Section 3 disqualification could be imposed by Congress passing a law or a non-binding resolution stating that the January 6 riot was an insurrection and that anyone who swore to uphold the Constitution and who incited or participated in the riot is disqualified under Section 3. Some legal experts believe a court would then be required to make a final determination that Trump was disqualified under Section 3. A state may also make a determination that Trump is disqualified under Section 3 from appearing on that state's ballot. Trump could appeal in court any disqualification by Congress or by a state. In addition to state or federal legislative action, a court action could be brought against Trump seeking his disqualification under Section 3. On January 11, 2021, Representative Cory Bush, Democrat from Missouri, and 47 co-sponsors introduced a resolution calling for expulsion, under Section 3, 
of members of Congress who voted against certifying the results of the 2020 U.S. presidential election or incited the January 6 riot. Those named in the resolution included Republican Representatives Mo Brooks of Alabama and Louis Gohmert of Texas, who took part in the rally that preceded the riot, and Republican Senators Josh Hawley of Missouri and Ted Cruz of Texas, who objected to counting electoral votes to certify the 2020 presidential election result. Section 4. Validity of Public Debt. Section 4. The validity of the public debt of the United States, authorized by law, including debts incurred for payment of pensions and bounties for services in suppressing insurrection or rebellion, shall not be questioned. But neither the United States nor any state shall assume or pay any debt or obligation incurred in aid of insurrection or rebellion against the United States, or any claim for the loss or emancipation of any slave. But all such debts, obligations and claims shall be held illegal and void. Section 4 confirmed the legitimacy of all public debt appropriated by the Congress. It also confirmed that neither the United States nor any state would pay for the loss of slaves or debts that had been incurred by the Confederacy. For example, during the Civil War several British and French banks had lent large sums of money to the Confederacy to support its war against the Union. In Perry v. United States, 1935, the Supreme Court ruled that under Section 4 voiding a United States bond went beyond the Congressional power. The debt ceiling crisis of 2011 and 2013 raised the question of what is the President's authority under Section 4. During the 2011 crisis, former President Bill Clinton said he would invoke the 14th Amendment to raise the debt ceiling if he were still in office, and force a ruling by the Supreme Court. Some, such as legal scholar Garrett Epps, fiscal expert Bruce Bartlett and Treasury Secretary Timothy Geithner, have argued that a debt ceiling may be unconstitutional and therefore void as long as it interferes with the duty of the government to pay interest on outstanding bonds and to make payments owed to pensioners, that is, Social Security and Railroad Retirement Act recipients. Legal analyst Jeffrey Rosen has argued that Section 4 gives the President unilateral authority to raise or ignore the national debt ceiling, and that if challenged the Supreme Court would likely rule in favor of expanded executive power or dismiss the case altogether for lack of standing. Erwin Chemerinsky, professor and dean at University of California, Irvin School of Law, has argued that not even in a dire financial emergency could the President raise the debt ceiling as there is no reasonable way to interpret the Constitution. Jack Balkin, Knight Professor of Constitutional Law at Yale University, opined that like Congress the President is bound by the 14th Amendment, for otherwise, he could violate any part of the amendment at will. Because the President must obey the Section 4 requirement not to put the validity of the public debt into question, Balkan argued that President Obama would have been obliged to prioritize incoming revenues to pay the public debt, interest on government bonds and any other vested obligations. What falls into the latter category is not entirely clear, but a large number of other government obligations, and certainly payments for future services, would not count and would have to be sacrificed. This might include, for example, Social Security payments. Section 5. Power of Enforcement. Section 5. The Congress shall have power to enforce, by appropriate legislation, the provisions of this article. The opinion of the Supreme Court in the Slaughterhouse Cases, 83 U.S., 16 Wall, 36, 1873, stated with a view to the Reconstruction Amendments and about the 14th Amendment Section 5 Enforcement Clause in light of said Amendments Equal Protection Clause. In the light of the history of these amendments, and the pervading purpose of them, which we have already discussed, it is not difficult to give a meaning to this clause. The existence of laws in the states where the newly emancipated Negroes resided, which discriminated with gross injustice and hardship against them as a class, was the evil to be remedied by this clause, and by it such laws are forbidden. If, however, the states did not conform their laws to its requirements, 
then by the fifth section of the Article of Amendment Congress was authorized to enforce it by suitable legislation. Section 5, also known as the Enforcement Clause of the 14th Amendment, enables Congress to pass laws enforcing the amendment's other provisions. In Ex Party Virginia, 1879, the U.S. Supreme Court explained the scope of Congress Section 5 power in the following broad terms, whatever legislation is appropriate, that is, adapted to carry out the objects the amendments have in view, whatever tends to enforce submission to the prohibitions they contain, and to secure to all persons the enjoyment of perfect equality of civil rights and the equal protection of the laws against state denial or invasion, if not prohibited, is brought within the domain of congressional power. In the civil rights cases, 1883, the Supreme Court interpreted Section 5 narrowly, stating that the legislation which Congress is authorized to adopt in this behalf is not general legislation upon the rights of the citizen, but corrective legislation. In other words, the amendment authorizes Congress to pass laws only to combat violations of the rights protected in other sections. In Kotzenbach v. Morgan, 1966, the court upheld Section 4E of the Voting Rights Act of 1965, which prohibits certain forms of literacy requirements as a condition to vote, as a valid exercise of congressional power under Section 5 to enforce the Equal Protection Clause. The court ruled that Section 5 enabled Congress to act both remedially and prophylactically to protect the rights guaranteed by the amendment. However, in City of Bernie v. Flores, 1997, the court narrowed Congress's enforcement power, holding that Congress may not enact legislation under Section 5 that substantively defines or interprets 14th Amendment rights. The court ruled that legislation is valid under Section 5 only if there is a congruence and proportionality between the injury to a person's 14th Amendment right and the means Congress adopted to prevent or remedy that injury. Adoption. Proposal by Congress. In the final years of the American Civil War and the Reconstruction era that followed, Congress repeatedly debated the rights of black former slaves freed by the 1863 Emancipation Proclamation and the 1865 13th Amendment, the latter of which had formally abolished slavery. Following the passage of the 13th Amendment by Congress, however, Republicans grew concerned over the increase it would create in the congressional representation of the Democratic-dominated southern states. Because the full population of freed slaves would now be counted for determining congressional representation, rather than the three-fifths previously mandated by the three-fifths compromise, the southern states would dramatically increase their power in the population-based House of Representatives, regardless of whether the former slaves were allowed to vote. Republicans began looking for a way to offset this advantage, either by protecting and attracting votes of former slaves, or at least by discouraging their disenfranchisement. In 1865, Congress passed what would become the Civil Rights Act of 1866, guaranteeing citizenship without regard to race, color, or previous condition of slavery or involuntary servitude. The bill also guaranteed equal benefits and access to the law, a direct assault on the black codes passed by many post-war states. The Black Codes attempted to return ex-slaves to something like their former condition by, among other things, restricting their movement, forcing them to enter into year-long labor contracts, prohibiting them from owning firearms, and preventing them from suing or testifying in court. Although strongly urged by moderates in Congress to sign the bill, President Andrew Johnson vetoed it on March 27, 1866. In his veto message, he objected to the measure because it conferred citizenship on the freedmen at a time when 11 out of 36 states were unrepresented in the Congress, and that it discriminated in favor of African Americans and against whites. Three weeks later, Johnson's veto was overridden and the measure became law. Despite this victory, even some Republicans who had supported the goals of the Civil Rights Act began to doubt that Congress really possessed constitutional power to turn those goals into laws. 
the experience also encouraged both radical and moderate Republicans to seek constitutional guarantees for black rights, rather than relying on temporary political majorities. More than 70 proposals for an amendment were drafted. In late 1865, the Joint Committee on Reconstruction proposed an amendment stating that any citizens barred from voting on the basis of race by a state would not be counted for purposes of representation of that state. This amendment passed the House, but was blocked in the Senate by a coalition of radical Republicans led by Charles Sumner, who believed the proposal a compromise with wrong, and Democrats opposed to black rights. Consideration then turned to a proposed amendment by Rep. John A. Bingham of Ohio, which would enable Congress to safeguard equal protection of life, liberty, and property of all citizens. This proposal failed to pass the House. In April 1866, the Joint Committee forwarded a third proposal to Congress, a carefully negotiated compromise that combined elements of the first and second proposals as well as addressing the issues of Confederate debt and voting by ex-Confederates. The House of Representatives passed House Resolution 127, 39th Congress several weeks later and sent it to the Senate for action. The resolution was debated and several amendments to it were proposed. Amendments to Sections 2, 3, and 4 were adopted on June 8, 1866, and the modified resolution passed by a 33-11 vote, 5 absent, not voting. The House agreed to the Senate amendments on June 13 by a 138-36 vote, 10 not voting. A concurrent resolution requesting the President to transmit the proposal to the executives of the several states was passed by both Houses of Congress on June 18. The Radical Republicans were satisfied that they had secured civil rights for blacks, but were disappointed that the amendment would not also secure political rights for blacks, in particular, the right to vote. For example, Thaddeus Stevens, a leader of the disappointed Radical Republicans, said, I find that we shall be obliged to be content with patching up the worst portions of the ancient edifice, and leaving it, in many of its parts, to be swept through by the tempests, the frosts, and the storms of despotism. Abolitionist Wendell Phillips called it a fatal and total surrender. This point would later be addressed by the 15th Amendment. Ratification by the States. On June 16, 1866, Secretary of State William Seward transmitted the 14th Amendment to the governors of the several states for its ratification. State legislatures in every formerly Confederate state, with the exception of Tennessee, refused to ratify it. This refusal led to the passage of the Reconstruction Acts. Ignoring the existing state governments, military government was imposed until new civil governments were established and the 14th Amendment was ratified. It also prompted Congress to pass a law on March 2, 1867, requiring that a former Confederate state must ratify the 14th Amendment before said state shall be declared entitled to representation in Congress. The first 28 states to ratify the 14th Amendment were 1. Connecticut, June 30, 1866. 2. New Hampshire, July 6, 1866. 3. Tennessee, July 18, 1866. 4. New Jersey, September 11, 1866, rescinded ratification February 20, 1868 March 24, 1868, re-ratified April 23, 2003. 5. Oregon, September 19, 1866, rescinded ratification October 16, 1868, re-ratified April 25, 1973. 6. Vermont, October 30, 1866. 7. New York, January 10, 1867. 8. Ohio, January 11, 1867, rescinded ratification January 13, 1868, re-ratified March 12, 2003. 9. Illinois, January 15, 1867. 10. West Virginia, January 16, 1867. 11. Michigan, 
January 16, 1867. 12. Minnesota, January 16, 1867. 13. Kansas, January 17, 1867. 14. Maine, January 19, 1867. 15. Nevada, January 22, 1867. 16. Indiana, January 23, 1867. 17. Missouri, January 25, 1867. 18. Pennsylvania, February 6, 1867. 19. Rhode Island, February 7, 1867. 20. Wisconsin, February 13, 1867. 21. Massachusetts, March 20, 1867. 22. Nebraska, June 15, 1867. 23. Iowa, March 16, 1868. 24. Arkansas, April 6, 1868. 25. Florida, June 9, 1868. 26. North Carolina, July 4, 1868, after rejection December 14, 1866. 27. Louisiana, July 9, 1868, after rejection February 6, 1867. 28. South Carolina, July 9, 1868, after rejection December 20, 1866. If rescission by Ohio and New Jersey were illegitimate, South Carolina would have been the 28th state to ratify the amendment, enough for the amendment to be a part of the Constitution. Otherwise, only 26 states ratified the amendment out of the needed 28. Ohio and New Jersey's rescissions, which occurred after Democrats' retake of the state's legislature, caused significant controversy and debate, but as this controversy occurred ratification by other states continued. 29. Alabama, July 13, 1868. On July 20, 1868, Secretary of State William H. Seward certified that if withdrawals of ratification by New Jersey and Ohio were illegitimate, then the amendment had become part of the Constitution on July 9, 1868, with ratification by South Carolina as the 28th state. The following day, Congress declared New Jersey's recession of the amendment scandalous, rejected the act and then adopted and transmitted to the Department of State a concurrent resolution declaring the 14th Amendment to be a part of the Constitution and directing the Secretary of State to promulgate it as such, thereby establishing a precedent that a state cannot rescind a ratification. Ultimately, New Jersey and Ohio were named in the Congressional Resolution as having ratified the amendment, as well as Alabama, making 29 states in total. On the same day, one more state ratified. 30. Georgia, July 21, 1868, after rejection November 9, 1866. On July 27, Secretary Seward received the formal ratification from Georgia. The following day, July 28, Secretary Seward issued his official proclamation certifying the adoption of the 14th Amendment. Secretary Seward stated that his proclamation was in conformance to the resolution by Congress, but his official list of states included both Alabama and Georgia, as well as Ohio and New Jersey. Ultimately, regardless of the legal status of New Jersey's and Ohio's rescission, the amendment would have passed at the same time because of Alabama and Georgia's ratifications. The inclusion of Ohio and New Jersey has led some to question the validity of the rescission of a ratification. The inclusion of Alabama and Georgia has called that conclusion into question. While there have been Supreme Court cases dealing with ratification issues, this particular question has never been adjudicated. On October 16, 1868, Three months after the amendment was ratified and part of the Constitution, Oregon rescinded its ratification bringing the number of states that had the amendment actively ratified to 27, for nearly a year, but this had no actual impact on the U.S. Constitution or the 14th Amendment's standing. The 14th Amendment was subsequently ratified. 31. Virginia, 
October 8, 1869, after rejection January 9, 1867. 32. Mississippi, January 17, 1870. 33. Texas, February 18, 1870, after rejection October 27, 1866. 34. Delaware, February 12, 1901, after rejection February 8, 1867. 35. Maryland, April 4, 1959, after rejection March 23, 1867. 36. California, May 6, 1959. 37. Kentucky, March 30, 1976, after rejection January 8, 1867. Since Ohio and New Jersey re-ratified the 14th Amendment in 2003, all U.S. states that existed during Reconstruction have ratified the amendment. The text of this podcast is sourced from the Wikipedia Foundation under a Creative Commons attribution, share alike license. The written text has been altered for voice presentation. To view the modified and original text versions visit thelegalpages.com. The content of this podcast is presented for informational purposes only, and is not intended to be legal or professional advice. The Wikipedia Foundation is not affiliated with this podcast.